This is the Music Halls of Fame podcast. This week we honor the year in music for 2003 along with a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class of 2003. We also look at the case for putting the Buzzcocks into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame plus our Spotlight Walk of Fame is the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Hollywood, California. Before we get going with the podcast, like everyone tells you, please like, subscribe, and hit the notification bell so you'll know when these podcast episodes drop, which is usually every Thursday. Now, on to this week's episode. The year was 2003. In music for that year, producer Phil Spector was arrested and later convicted for the death of actress Lana Clarkson. Spector would spend the rest of his life in jail for that. Meanwhile, Michael Jackson was also arrested that year on child molestation charges. He would later be found not guilty, at least in a court of law, but not really in the court of public opinion. A fire in a nightclub in Rhode Island claimed 100 lives when pyrotechnics that were set off during a performance by the group's Great White set the nightclub on fire, quickly spreading and then trapping people inside. The Dixie Chicks, now known as the Chicks, created controversy and were pretty much canceled when they came out against the Iraq War, which at the time had high public approval ratings. Those ratings would later change. The iTunes Store opened online on April 28th of 2003, saving the music industry from itself. The Recording Industry Association of America started suing fans who downloaded music illegally, hence the reason why iTunes saved them from themselves. Singles didn't actually sell as much overseas as 2003 was the first year that no single sold a million copies in the UK. Celine Dion started a trend when she started her residency shows in Las Vegas, pop and rock stars doing month-long and multi-year concert runs in casinos in Vegas would soon become the norm. Groups who were formed in 2003 included the Cheetah Girls, Chloe and Halle, Gnarls Barkley, Equilibrium, Nina Sky, Ramses, and the Pussycat Dolls. Groups who either broke up or took extended breaks in 2004 included B.B. Mac, Black Flag, Men Without Hats, Pantera, The Cranberries, Quiet Riot, Propellerheads, Remy Zero, The Righteous Brothers, The Rollins Band, S Club 7, Gangstar, Gravity Kills, Seville, The Stone Temple Pilots, Suede, Winger, and Wild Orchid. As usual, a bunch of those groups got back together for a tour or two. Groups that got back together in 2003 included The Stooges and Edge of Sanity. Artists who were born in 2003 included Olivia Rodrigo, The Kid Leroy, Bad Barbie, Jojo Siwa, Tate McRae, Blanco, and Polina Bogusevich. Artists who unfortunately passed away in 2003 included country music superstar Johnny Cash, along with his wife, June Carter Cash, Maurice Gibb of the Bee Gees, singer and songwriter Warren Zevon, 
Howie Epstein of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, country music singer Johnny Paycheck, jazz songstress Nina Simone, R&B singer and songwriter Edwin Starr, Noel Redding of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, flute player Herbie Mann, entertainer Bob Hope, the founder of Sun Studios Sam Phillips, entertainer Gregory Hines, entertainer Donald O'Connor, the maestro of love himself Mr. Barry White, the Queen of Salsa, Miss Celia Cruz, country music singer Slim Dusty, singer Hank Ballard, singer Robert Palmer, singer-songwriter Elliot Smith, popular symphony conductor Michael Kamen, country music singer Don Gibson, singer Bobby Hatfield, rappers Sabotage, Camouflage, Half a Mill, and Soldier Slim, and Ty Longley of the aforementioned group Great White, who died in that fire we talked about a minute ago when he ran back inside the club in order to rescue his musical instruments. 50 Cent had the biggest selling album of the year on the pop charts with Get Rich or Die Trying. Other big albums were Nora Jones's Come Away With Me, Michael Jackson's Number Ones, The Dixie Chicks' Home, Linkin Park's Meteora, Evanescence's Fallen, Beyonce's debut solo album Dangerously In Love, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, Britney Spears' In The Zone, Avril Lavigne's Let Go, and Coldplay's A Rush of Blood To The Head. 50 Cent also scored the number one single of 2003 on the Hot 100 Singles Chart with In The Club. Other hit songs were R. Kelly's Ignition, Sean Paul's Get Busy, Beyonce and Jay-Z's Crazy In Love, Three Doors Downs's When I'm Gone, Matchbox 20's Unwell, Chingy's Right Durr, Ilea's Miss You, Kid Rock and Sheryl Crow's Picture, and Evanescence's Bring Me To Life. In country music, Toby Keith, Brenda Lee, Jody Messina, Leanne Rimes, Trace Atkins, and Alan Jackson all had best-selling greatest hits albums. Other big country albums that were released included Buddy Jewell's self-titled album, Chris Cagle's self-titled album, Daryl Worley's Have You Forgotten, George Strait's Honky Tonk Bill, Martina McBride's Martina, Brad Paisley's Mud on the Tires, Brooks and Dunn's Red Dirt Road, and Winona's What the World Needs Now is Love. Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett had the biggest hit of the year with It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. Other big country singles included Mark Wills's 19-something, Blake Shelton's The Baby, Toby Keats and Willie Nelson's Beer for My Horses, Joe Nichols' Broken Heartsville, Diamond Rio's I Believe, Gary Allen's Man to Man and Tough Little Boys, Lone Star's My Front Porch Looking In, Tim McGraw's Real Good Man, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, and Randy Travis's Three Wooden Crosses. In hip-hop, the biggest album, of course, was 50 Cent's Get Rich or Die Tryin'. Other big albums that were released included Outkast's Grammy Award-winning album Speaker Box The Love Below, Jay-Z's The Black Album, Tupac's Tupac Resurrection, Ludacris's Chicken and Beer, G-Unit's Beg for Mercy, DMX's Grand Champ, The Neptune's The Neptune Presents, Clones, Obi Trice's Cheers, and the Bad Boys 2 movie soundtrack. As far as singles went, 
50 cents in the club was the biggest, but he also had competition from himself, specifically the songs 21 Questions, PIMP, and Wanksta. Other hits included Ludacris's Stand Up, Lil Kim's Magic Stick, Chingy's Holiday Inn, One Call Away, and Right There, Nelly's Air Force Ones, Jay-Z's Excuse Me Miss, Busta Rhymes and Mariah Carey's I Know What You Want, Fabulous's Can't Let You Go and Into You, Youngblood's Damn, Pharrell's Frontin', and a song by legendary wrestler Randy Muscleman Savage called Remember Me, which went to number one. Seriously, that happened. In dance music, Music Magazine stopped publishing a hard copy magazine. Tiesto started the trend of DJs doing solo stadium and arena shows. On the dance charts, the pop and R&B crossover artists who had hits were a rather eclectic bunch that year. Among them were Madonna, Mariah Carey, Justin Timberlake, Seal, Pink, Michael Jackson, Daniel Bedingfield, Jewel, along with Elvis Presley and the Rolling Stones. Yeah, you heard all that right. DJ Paul Oakenfold did a remix of Elvis's song Rubberneckin', and there was a remix of the Stones' classic Sympathy for the Devil. Both of those actually hit number one on the dance charts. As far as the more quote-unquote legit dance artists, other than DJ Paul Oakenfold, you had the weekend players, Freeland, Paul Van Dyke, Bob Sinclair, Darude, Boomcat, Christine W., Anastasia, Robbie Rivera, BT, The Funky Green Dogs, Laura Passini, Chris Cox, Becky Bailing, and Deborah Cox, who all had big dance hits. Probably the longest-lasting song of 2003 in terms of both impact on radio and a DJ and festival mixes to this very day is Benny Benazi's classic electro house anthem, Satisfaction. The top 10 DJs on DJ Mag's Top 100 DJs poll for that year were Tiesto, Paul Van Dyke, Armin Van Buren, Sasha, John Digweed, Ferry Corsten, Carl Cox, Paul Oakenfold, Judge Jules, and Deep Dish. In Latin music, Juanes was the biggest act of 2003. Also having good years were Celia Cruz, Ricky Martin, Shakira, Cumbia Kings, Ricardo Orjona, and La India, Celia Cruz, of course, had the big year because she passed away and all of her downloads started going up after that. Broadway musicals and revivals that opened in 2003 included Wicked, Avenue Q, Bells, 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 Bounce, Caroline or Change, The Full Monty, Jerry Springer, The Opera. Yep, that actually happened. Never Gonna Dance, Show Tune, Taboo, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Boy from Oz, Fame on 42nd Street, and Tonight's the Night. Musical movies, concert films, and documentaries included Brother Bear, Camp, End of the Century, The Story of the Ramones, From Justin to Kelly, The Jungle Book 2, Love Under the Sun, A Mighty Wind, School of Rock, The Singing Detective, and Tupac Resurrection. 
In awards for the music of 2003, Outkast became the first hip-hop act to win the Grammy Award for Best Album for the album Speaker Box The Love Below. Coldplay won Record of the Year for Clocks. Luther Vandross and Richard Marks won Song of the Year for Dance With My Father. And Evanescence won Best New Artist, which had another one of those awkward moments when fellow New Artist nominee 50 Cent went on stage when Evanescence won to complain about the fact that he didn't win. Class act. At the American Music Awards, Madonna won Artist of the Year. At the Billboard Music Awards, 50 Cent won Artist of the Year. At the MTV Video Music Awards, Madonna kissed Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, which was all anybody could actually talk about that year. But aside from that, the video of the year actually went to Missy Elliott for Work It. Outkast won Album of the Year at the Soul Train Music Awards, and Beyonce and Faith Hill won the music categories at the People's Choice Awards. At the Eurovision Singing Contest, which was held that year in Riga, Latvia, Turkey won for the song Every Way That I Can. Alan Jackson won Entertainer of the Year at the Country Music Association Awards. Meanwhile, Toby Keith won Entertainer of the Year at the Academy of Country Music Awards. The Darkness won Best British Album for Permission to Land, and Dido won Best Song for White Flag at the Brit Awards. Sam Roberts won Best Album for We Were Born in a Flame, while Nelly Furtado won Best Song for Powerless, Say What You Want, at the Juno Awards. Powderfinger won Album of the Year for Vulture Street, and Delta Goodrem won Song of the Year for Born to Try at the Aria Music Awards. At the Tony Awards, Hairspray won Best Musical and Nine won Best Revival of a Musical. The Pulitzer Prize for Music was won by John Adams for On the Transmigration of Souls. Musically, at the Academy Awards, the movie The Return of the King won both music categories with the song Into the West winning Best Song and Howard Shore winning Best Original Score. Dizzy Rascal won the Mercury Music Prize for the album Boy in the Corner, becoming the first rapper to win that prize. The 2003 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was held on March 10th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. During the ceremony, the hall inducted drummer Benny Benjamin, pianist Floyd Kramer, and saxophonist Steve Douglas into the Sidemen category. Record executive Mo Austin was inducted into the non-performers category. As far as the performers category went, the induction class was stacked with popular talent as artists ACDC, The Police, The Righteous Brothers, and Elvis and the Costellos were all inducted, along with this next group. The United Kingdom was in a bit of a slump in 1976. Manufacturing jobs were being lost as the Industrial Revolution was grinding to a halt. Out of the debris came the music of the disenfranchised youth of Sheffield, Manchester, Liverpool, and London, England, punk rock. A few groups took the anger of the youth and turned it into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame careers, changing the world in the process. The Sex Pistols were the ones who wanted to watch the world burn. This next group wanted to change the world as well as watching it burn. 
in the early 1970s, if you were walking through the London tube system or the metro or subway, as we call it here in America, then you may have been treated to a busker playing the ukulele. This busker, John Graham Mellor, was born on August 21st, 1952, and was originally part of the punk rock group The 101ers, where his stage name was Woody Mellor. Meanwhile, in another part of town, there was Bernard Rhodes, who was the manager of the band London SS. Bernard was not only the manager, but more importantly to our story, he was also really good friends with Glenn Matlock and Steve Jones of the aforementioned up-and-coming group, the Sex Pistols. The London SS were only around for 1975 and broke up in 1976, but they never actually played any gigs. In their band, though, was a guy by the name of Mick Jones, who was born on June 26, 1955. Glenn Matlock and Steve Jones helped to suggest some other guys for London SS, including Paul Simonon, born December 15, 1955, and Terry Chimes, born July 5, 1956. Neither of those guys actually made the group. But Nicky Heaton, born May 30th, 1955, did make the group, but then he quit after a little while. When London SS finally broke up, Mick Jones was slightly directionless, not knowing what his next move was actually going to be. That changed, like a lot of people, once he saw the Sex Pistols play one night. After that, he knew that he needed to do something with that type of energy. Both he and Bernard Rhodes, who was still his personal manager, got to work putting together a new group. First, Jones recruited Paul Simonon. Then they got Keith Levine and Terry Chimes, although Chimes looked at the gig as temporary and quit. Terry would actually do that a lot, by the way. They still needed a lead singer and had looked at a guy by the name of Billy Watts. However, Rhodes had his eyes on another guy who was itching to get into a band that had that Sex Pistols energy and who also himself had that same life-changing moment after seeing the Sex Pistols play, Woody Meller. Woody said yes, since the 101ers were pretty much done as a band at that point. And while Terry was in wandering mode for a little while, this ragtag group got a guy named Pablo Lepritin to sit in until Chimes came back into the fold. And that was it. The group was formed. Now, to name the group. First, foremost at least, Woody Meller changed his stage name to something that reflected his guitar skills, Joe Strummer. Then, they named the band. First, the weak heart drops. Meh, that was all right. Then the psychotic negatives. Okay, better for a punk band, but not quite there yet. And then Strummer came up with a name that kept showing up in a newspaper one day as he was reading it. Clash. And thus, the Clash were born. Their first gig was as the opening act for the Sex Pistols on the Bicentennial of America's Independence Day, July 4, 1976, at the Black Swan Bar in Sheffield, England. The Clash wanted that debut because it was a couple of days before their rivals, The Damned, played their opening slot for the Sex Pistols. 
The clash looked at the damned as rivals because both groups actually rose up from the ashes of the London SS group. Afterwards, they went to a club to watch a New York City punk rock band that was playing some gigs in England that night, the Ramones. And there, after getting into a fight with yet another punk rock band, the Clash decided to take themselves much more seriously. They went, rehearsed, wrote some songs, and the next month came back stronger with a show with the Buzzcocks and the Sex Pistols. Levine was fired the next month from the group, supposedly from drug use. The Clash played another gig without Levine, and then Chimes did his famous quitting act and was replaced by Rob Harper for a little bit until Chimes came back yet again. The final piece to The Clash's puzzle in 1976 was what their message was going to be. They were left-wing, but not anarchists like a lot of punk rockers. They were definitely anti-racist, even going so far as to write the song White Riot about the 1976 police beatings of black people during the Notting Hill Carnival. They were anti-violence. They were also anti-fascist. They still had a lot of anger and wanted to share that with the world. And the year 1976 was their molding process. 1977 would be the year that England took notice. The Clash were signed to CBS Records in early 1977. By then, the music press had heard and seen The Clash and were impressed, even leading one music publicity machine to call 1977, quote, the year of The Clash, end quote. And that was without an album even being released yet. After writing most of the album in Mick's grandmother's apartment, the group recorded their debut self-titled album in February 1977 with Mickey Foote as the producer. Total production cost was 4,000 British pounds. The album The Clash was released on April 8, 1977 with the lead single White Riot setting the group's tone and being released a month earlier. Both the album and the White Riot single skyrocketed onto the British charts, with Riot going to number 34 and the album going to number 12. What the critics loved about the album was that it showcased the group's musical diversity, including reggae beats into the harsh punk rock guitar sounds. This sound actually helped to influence other groups like The Police and also helped to push another musical genre, ska music. During this time, Chimes left the group yet again, so The Clash got another drummer, Topper Heaton. With Heaton in tow, The Clash went out on tour and earned a reputation for being destructive, although it was mainly their fans that were tearing apart clubs and concert venues and not them. The big concert that they played that tour was April 30th, 1978's Rock Against Racism concert, which was put on to protest the racist and fascist movement of the National Front Political Party. CBS Records wanted them back in the studio. They got with producer Sandy Perlman and produced the album Give Em Enough Rope, which was released on November 10th, 1978. The album was less raw than their debut album. That was because CBS wanted the group to make it big in America, so they wanted a more polished, watered-down sound. 
the group didn't like that at all and were so bored making the album that Simonin brought in World War II films to try and get some inspiration. They also got rid of Bernard Rhodes as their manager and brought in Caroline Kuhn. When the album was released, it was to critical acclaim, with some in the media calling it the best album of 1978. It even hit number two on the British charts. Where it didn't do well was where CBS wanted the band to water down their music for originally, America, where the best the album could do at the time was 128. American domination would have to wait, but it only had to wait for one more year. In the meantime, The Clash went out on tour and also released an EP, June 1979's The Cost of Living. The Clash went to Wessex Sound Studio in London in August and September of 1979 to record their next album, this time with Guy Stevens as producer. Stevens allowed the group to try a lot of different genres, which made this album richer in texture. The album's photo cover happened on September 20th, 1979, when, during a concert in London, England, Paul Simonin was upset with the lack of crowd reaction. So, he smashed his guitar on stage. The photo, which was taken by Penny Smith, captured the group's raw energy and is almost as iconic as the album It's the Cover of, December 14, 1979's album, London Calling. London Calling was a huge hit in the UK, hitting number nine, and it finally was the album that cracked the American charts, topping off at number 27 and becoming their first platinum-selling album in America. London Calling is also considered to be one of the greatest albums ever made of any genre at any time ever. 1980 was a bit of a bummer for the guys, as they wanted to release a single every single month. CBS, however, wasn't having that, so the group went into the studio again, this time with a bunch of different producers. What came out of their recording sessions in Jamaica, New York, and London was the 36-song triple album Sandinista, which was released on December 12, 1980. While critical reaction was mixed, the album did very well on both sides of the pond, which is very impressive when you consider that it was a triple album, not even a double album, and was a lot more expensive than your average Christmas-released album at that point. The Clash spent 1981 touring. They also released the very catchy single, This Is Radio Clash. In late 1981, they went into the studio in London with Mick Jones producing this time. The rest of the guys weren't really happy with the more commercial tone the album was taking. Plus, Jones had developed a heroin addiction and was sometimes missing from his own recording sessions. They finally finished recording in New York City in early 1982 with Glyn Jones as their producer now. The album, Combat Rock, was released on May 13, 1982 and became a huge hit. It had the hit song, Should I Stay or Should I Go, Straight to Hell, and that 80s chart topper, Rock the Casbah, which rode the MTV bandwagon with a music video that hit heavy rotation. 
that would be the video with the Orthodox Jewish person going to a Clash concert with an Arab man while the band played next to an oil derrick with an armadillo roaming through the video for whatever reason that armadillo was going through. You know, I have no idea why they put that armadillo in there except that it had to do with desert, I guess. It was the 80s. I blame Obama. It was during the making of Combat Rock, by the way, that the wheels started to come off of the band. First, Strummer and Simon Inn brought back Bernard Rhodes as manager, over the wishes of Mick Jones. Topper Heaton was bounced from the group because of drug abuse, which was kind of hypocritical of the band when you consider that Jones had a nasty habit as well. Chimes came back to the group to cover for Heaton, and then The Clash went out on tour in 1982. But then Chimes quit again and was replaced by Pete Howard this time. In 1983, they played the Us Music Festival and got into fights with security. And that was the end of the road for Mick Jones, who was finally fired and was replaced by Nick Shepard and Vince White. They spent the rest of 1983 and 1984 touring with this new lineup. On November 4, 1985, The Clash released what was considered their contractual obligation album, Cut the Crap. The album did well, although the band hated all but a couple of singles from it. Two months later, in January 1986, The Clash officially called it quits and broke up. Mick Jones went on to form the new band Big Audio Dynamite, sometimes also called Big Audio Dynamite 2, who had hit songs of their own like The Globe, Rush, and Just Play Music. Levine, who left before the group became huge, went on to form Public Image Limited with Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols once the Pistols had their own implosion in the late 1970s. P.I.L., as they're sometimes called, had hits like Disappointed, Public Image, and Don't Ask Me. Joe Strummer started Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Paul Simonin started a band called Havana 3AM. Topper Heaton went solo but ended up in jail for a while on drug charges. On November 15, 2002, Strummer and Jones actually got together and played three songs at a benefit concert. Unbeknownst to a lot of people at the time, both Strummer and Jones had written songs again together and were going to put them out. There was even talk of doing a reunion concert a few months later as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced that The Clash would be inducted in 2003. Simon wasn't really into a reunion. Neither was Topper, who didn't even show up for the induction ceremony. In the end, it didn't matter because on December 22, 2002, Joe Strummer passed away from a congenital heart defect. As of this recording, the only other lineup member who had passed on is Keith Levine, who passed away on November 11, 2022, from liver cancer. The Clash released six studio albums. Of those, all of them went top 20 in the UK, while London Calling, Sandinista, and Combat Rock were the only ones to go top 20 in America. They also released 31 singles. Of those, 14 went top 40 in the UK and 2 went top 40 in America. Train in Vain from London Calling went to number 23 and Rock the Casbah from Combat Rock went to number 8. 
Of course, like a lot of classic rock acts, the hits that get played on the radio and streaming stations are the songs that didn't do well in America. This is Radio Clash, Should I Stay or Should I Go, White Riot, I Fought the Law, and their signature song, London Calling. None of those actually hit the top anything in America. The Clash influenced a ton of different bands and genres, and in the end, both Mick Jones and Joe Strummer got what they wanted. They, along with their British counterparts, the Sex Pistols, actually changed the world. For the better, most would say. Presented for induction by Tom Morello of 2023 inductees Rage Against the Machine, along with The Edge from 2005 inductees U2, Joe Strummer, Mick Jones, Nikki Topper-Heden, Paul Simonin, and Terry Chimes. The Clash, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2003, and we have some of their music on this podcast music playlist, the link to which is in the show notes. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you about our other podcast, the Music History Today podcast, where we go over the events, music releases, births, and passings for that day in music history. The Music History Today podcast drops each and every day, including on the weekends, on this channel, the Music History Today Network, and also on our Music History Today Network YouTube page. Now, back to the Music Halls of Fame podcast. Since we just spoke about The Clash, let's look at the case for putting another group we just very briefly spoke about, the British punk rock band The Buzzcocks, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. As is the norm, to the tale of the tape we go. The Buzzcocks released 10 studio albums, 5 live albums, 11 compilation albums, and 10 EPs. Of those, only 1979's studio album, A Different Kind of Tension, made the U.S. charts, where it hit number 163. In the U.K., they had their first EP, 1979's Spiral Scratch, hit number 31, and their 1989 EP, The Fab Four, hit number 83. They also had their first three studio albums hit the top 40 in the UK. 1978's Another Music in a Different Kitchen hit number 15. Their 1978 follow-up Love Bites hit number 13. And 1979's A Different Kind of Tension hit number 26. The group still puts out albums, by the way. Their last one was actually 2022's Sonics in the Soul. The Buzzcocks also released 26 singles. Of those, none of them were big in America. In the UK, a completely different story as always, as six of them hit the top 40, with 1978's Ever Fallen in Love with Someone You Shouldn't Have being their biggest charter at number 12. While bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols were brash and in your face, the Buzzcocks had a more melodic version of punk rock. They also had very catchy lyrics that were full of social commentary. And it was because of that that they also became one of the most respected and influential punk rock bands of all time. 
Nirvana, Green Day, The Offspring, NoFX, Blink-182, and The Ramones were among the bands who were influenced by the Buzzcocks. Their songs have been covered by other bands like Love Bites by Nirvana and What Do I Get by The Ramones. Their songs have also been in films like Train Spotting. They were also one of the first LGBTQ plus supporters and allies in punk rock, which makes them either heroes or villains, depending on which side of that culture war you happen to fall upon, I suppose. The Buzzcocks have actually been nominated to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few times before. And much like often nominated bands like Chic, Rufus, and Soundgarden, they just can't seem to get over the hump. Hopefully, that'll change soon, because the Buzzcocks definitely deserve to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and to prove it, we have put a selection of their music onto this week's podcast playlist. The link, of course, is in the show notes. There are many walks of fame in the world. There's the Aerospace Walk of Honor in Lancaster, California, the Almeria Walk of Fame in Almeria, Spain, the Australian Film Walk of Fame in Sydney, Australia. However, when you think of walks of fame, you really only think of one, let's be honest. It's the most famous walk of fame of them all. It is the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The idea for the Walk of Fame was dreamed up by E.M. Stewart, who was president of the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce in 1953. People think that the idea of having stars came from the Hollywood Hotel, which had stars on the ceiling of their dining room. The final parameters for the project were agreed upon in 1955 and then presented to the Los Angeles City Council in 1956. Construction for the Walk of Fame started in 1958, and it ended in 1960. There were eight people who were supposed to be given stars first. Oliver Borden, Ronald Coleman, Louise Fazenda, Preston Foster, Burt Lancaster, Edward Sedgwick, Ernest Torrance, and Joanne Woodward. However, director Stanley Kramer is actually credited with having his star installed onto the Walk of Fame first on March 28, 1960. The popular myth is that Joanne Woodward was actually the first star, but she was the first person to be photographed posing with her star. So that myth kind of stuck. Pixar didn't happen, you know. The walk covers 1.3 miles down Hollywood Boulevard with a few side streets added as space permits. As of the end of 2023, there were 2,763 stars. The stars are awarded in five categories, film, television, theater slash live performance, radio, and music. For our podcast, we'll only be dealing with artists who were awarded in at least the radio and music categories. People who get stars have to pay $50,000 for the upkeep to the star. And every year, the Chamber of Commerce gets over 200 names for consideration for a star, but only 20 to 24 stars are awarded during a normal year. There has only been one star that was not put onto the actual sidewalk, 
Muhammad Ali's because he did not want to be walked on because he was a champion. He was inducted into the theater-slash-live performance category because a lot of his fights were put on television. And his star is on a wall at Hollywood and Highland at 6801 Hollywood Boulevard. There have also been special stars given out to people who were part of the Hollywood community, such as former Los Angeles mayor, the late Tom Bradley, and honorary mayor of Hollywood and the guy most associated with promoting the Walk of Fame, the late great Johnny Grant. There have been stars given out to people as well who were not entertainers, but who had done important things, especially on live television, such as the crew of Apollo 11. Usually, those stars are put in the live performance category. There have been two presidents who were given stars, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. Reagan was given one for his radio and acting career before he became president, and Trump because of his TV show, The Apprentice. Only one star so far in the history of the Walk of Fame has ever been considered seriously for removal from the Walk of Fame, Donald Trump's. As of yet, no final decision has really been made about removing it, nor do I doubt that it'll ever be removed anyway, regardless. Politics, you know. Billy Idol was born William Michael Albert Broad on November 30th, 1955 in Stanmore, Middlesex, England, UK. He was first in the British punk group Chelsea, then became the lead singer of the popular punk rock band Generation X. Generation X released three albums on Chrysalis Records, but then they broke up. Billy took everything he learned during his time in the London punk rock scene and developed an extremely successful solo career once he left England for New York City, and then he hooked up with guitarist Steve Stevens. What also helped Billy's career was the fledgling cable music channel that started up when Billy made his solo debut, MTV. MTV desperately needed music videos and Billy was making them, so MTV put them into heavy rotation. His punk rock spiked hair look with his dance rock songs were perfect for the channel and he became one of the channel's first big stars. Billy put out an EP called Don't Stop in 1981, which had a song that Billy originally recorded with Generation X called Dancing With Myself. He then released a self-titled album in 1982. The album was a big hit with the songs White Wedding, Hot in the City, which became the theme song for the TV show 21 Jump Street spinoff show Booker that starred Richard Grieco, along with a re-release of Dancing With Myself. Both songs became big hits. His 1983 album, Rebel Yell, made him into a superstar with hit songs Rebel Yell and Eyes Without a Face. 1986's Whiplash Smile further cemented him as one of 1980's biggest artists with the hit songs To Be a Lover and Sweet Sixteen. In 1987, Billy released a remix album called Vital Idol, which became a big hit as well. That album had a live version of his cover of the Tommy James and the Shondell song, Moni Moni, which went to number one in America. 
The 1990s actually started off on a bad note for Billy when he was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident. The accident cost him two acting roles as he was just beginning to take his acting career seriously. He was supposed to have a big role in Oliver Stone's movie The Doors about the life of Jim Morrison and The Doors. That role was cut back to a minor role. He was also supposed to actually be the T-1000 Terminator in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Due to Billy's accident, though, the role instead went to actor Robert Patrick. Robert Patrick, coincidentally, has his own musical connection. His brother is lead singer Richard Patrick of the group Filter, who had big hits Take a Picture and Hey Man, Nice Shot back in the day. Anyway, as Billy was getting better, he released the 1990 album Charmed Life. That album had the Grammy-nominated song Cradle of Love, which was also featured in the Andrew Dice Clay movie The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. After that, Billy became a victim of the changing musical landscape, even though he kept putting out albums every few years. Steve Stevens and he went their separate ways, but then they got back together. And then, about a decade or so ago, right when 80s music started to make a comeback, so did Billy. At least in concert, as his shows routinely still sell out to this very day. With the help of his guitarist and writing partner, Steve Stevens, Billy put out eight studio albums. Of those, four hit the top 40, with two of them, Rebel Yell and Whiplash Smile, going top 10. In his native UK, he had five go top 40, but only Whiplash Smile went top 10. Billy also put out 37 singles. In America, of those 37, 10 went top 40 on the pop charts, with four going top 10 in his remake of Moni Moni going to number one. On the U.S. rock and roll charts, he did better with 16 going top 40, 8 going top 10, and Cradle of Love going to number 1. In the U.K., only 10 went to the top 40, with 3 going top 10, and the highest only going to number 6. He was also nominated for 3 Grammy Awards and 10 MTV Video Music Awards, back in the days when getting a music video award actually meant something. He has, to date, sold over 40 million records worldwide, and he and his sonic assassin, Steve Stevens, are still touring. At 6201 Hollywood Boulevard, in front of the Shake Shack, you will find the star of William Michael Albert Broad, better known as Billy Idol, inducted with the two. 1,743rd star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on January 5th, 2023, and we will put his greatest hits onto this week's podcast playlist. The link, as mentioned before, is, of course, in the show notes. The Music Halls of Fame podcast is part of the Music History Today network, which can be found under Music History Today on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and also on our YouTube page under Music History Today. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>